Welcome, everybody, to the G3X Conversation with Ken Wilcox on his new book, Leading Through Culture, and his experiences leading a key Silicon Valley bank, financing innovations in technology, as well as the opening of a joint venture bank with China. His experience marrying finance with innovation has many implications for our sector. His experience working through cultures is also very much part of our sector. And we're thrilled to have him speak at G3X. Mr. Wilcox currently serves as Emeritus Chairman of Silicon Valley Bank and was Vice President of uh, SPD Silicon Valley Bank. He was previously the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank Financial Group, SBV Financial Group. Um, Mr. Wilcox is chairman of the board of the Asia Society of Northern California, treasurer of the Asian Art Museum, and a member of the advisory board for the 21st Century China Center Advisory Board. So he has some nonprofit experience as a board member as well. Uh, earlier in his career, Mr. Wilcox was a member of the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco from 2006 to 2012. Mr. Wilcox earned his master's degree in business administration from Harvard Business School. I don't know if any of you ever heard of this little tiny school somewhere in Massachusetts, as well as a PhD in German studies from Ohio State University. So with that, welcome Ken Wilcox, and I'm sure you all have applause emojis you can break out for him. Welcome to 501c3BS busting the myths of the social sector, and deprogramming you for organizational growth. Brought to you by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics, celebrating our 25th anniversary year in 2021. I'm Zoot Velasco, director of the Gianneschi, and your host for this podcast journey. Well, let me ask you this question. Talk about the relationship between leadership and vision. I think uh, a lot of people think of vision as a major part of leadership. I know I do. But what do you mean when you say that people should leverage themselves through others? That's something you mentioned in your book. And I thought that was an intriguing turn of phrase, leveraging yourself through others. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a really... um... I think that's one of the uh, best questions that you could possibly ask, at least from, from my point of view, that's, that's the, one of the, that's the crux of the matter. That's why I get the big bucks, Ken, is for yeah, ask these questions. Well, you deserve a bonus today for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you. Um, let me answer it indirectly and then I'll do, uh, answer it directly. I recently read Jim Mattis's book on leadership. I don't know if you have it. Yes, yes. And for, for those of you who don't instantaneously remember that, uh, who Jim Mattis was, he was the head of the Marine Corps for about 30 years. And uh, I think about 30 years. In any case, he was also, I believe, Secretary of Defense under Trump. And then for whatever reason, the two didn't mesh and he was gone. Um, but I picked up his book when it came out about a year ago and I read it. And um, one of the things he says in the book that really rang true for me is he says his job is telling people what he wants them to accomplish, but he never tells them how to accomplish it. And to me, that sentence is so important that it's such an important aspect of leadership. And I'll give you a mundane example, then I'll give you a bigger one. So let's say we're having company. Uh, and my wife is uh, anxious because uh, she doesn't feel the house is clean enough. Uh, so she asks me if I would help clean the house before the company arrives. And that's just fine because I'm actually not a bad guy and I'm willing to help out. And I feel it's my responsibility. 
But when she then starts to, I have to say this quietly, when she then <laughs> to tell me how to do it, that's when I get really annoyed because I know how to clean a house. I know how to push a vacuum cleaner. Nobody has to tell me how. And it, it, it degrades me. It makes me feel humiliated. And it, it totally dampens my creativity. So I, I actually wrote Mattis a letter and I was told that he's, you know, not always um, that receptive to letters from people he doesn't know, but he got right back in touch with me. And we, we, we firmly agreed with each other that that's a, an important aspect of leadership is that you may have a vision of where you want people to go, but you need to let them figure out how to get there or couple of things, bad things happen. One of them is you dampen their enthusiasm, just like mine, <laughs> when it comes to cleaning the house. The, that's number one, you dampen their enthusiasm. And number two is they, 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 their creativity falls off because if they're not enthusiastic, they're not going to be creative and they're not likely to do it in the most unique and interesting and ingenious sort of a way. And third, over time, you're going to lose your best people and you're going to end up with a, an army of drones. You're going to end up with a bunch of people that don't mind taking orders and don't mind if you tell them exactly how to do it. So I, when, you know, when I wrote this book, I uh, shared it with a couple of my former colleagues before I tried to publish it. And I remember one of them, a guy I really value. And another one, a woman that I really value, two people who are my readers from my team, they both said the same thing. Um, now, this will sound like I'm patting myself on the back, so please forgive me. But both of them ironically said, you were one of the best leaders I've ever seen. But to tell you the truth, you're not that good a manager. <laughs> and at first I was a little hurt, but then I quickly realized they're exactly right. That's exactly right. So my view is that the best leaders in this world, and if you look at it from an historical point of view, are people with a vision and they can articulate that vision. They can articulate the vision in a way that's compelling, in a way that's concrete, in a way that makes people wanna get on board. And you can think of a whole host of examples. Uh, some of the obvious ones would be the Martin Luther King example, I have a dream. And then as that speech unfolds, you see that he's able to describe in very concrete terms what it's going to look like when that dream is realized. And the listeners, the potential followers, his constituencies can see and feel in their hearts, not just in their minds, how life will be better. And then they wanna get on board. We don't have any particular evidence that, um, or at least not to my, the best of my knowledge, that Martin Luther King was um, necessarily a good manager. He might've been. Um, there, one doesn't preclude the other, but it, it's not his managerial capabilities that he's known for. It's his vision. And if you read his, a lot of biographies, which has been one of my uh, favorite pursuits is uh, biographies of important personages from history, you can see that this is a common characteristic among people who are today considered the best leaders in the past. It, even Moses, um, Moses was, you know, wandering in the desert with this indeterminate number of Jews for 40 years, escaping Egypt and headed toward the promised land. And he'd, he'd round them up every couple of weeks, I guess, and hold a, a speech that was um, 
really motivating. And he would describe it as we're going to the land of milk and honey. And then he would go on to describe exactly what that land was going to look like. And people could see it in their mind's eye and they, they would get, they were motivated to, to, to go along with Moses and to, to get there because they could see that life would be so much better for them once they were there. Vision is, by the way, it's never about the leader, or at least it never should be. No, no respectable leader stands up and says, we should go to wherever because I personally am going to be rich once we get there. Right. Because the truth is nobody cares about whether or not they're rich. People ultimately care about their own well-being and the well-being of their families and their friends and their communities. So it's got the vision has to be other-centered. It has to be about the people. Yeah, I, when I teach, I always tell people to understand the difference between management, supervision, and leadership, that they're three different things. Managing is taking care of things. Supervising is taking care of people. But leadership is about inspiring people to want to do those things you want done and to make it their idea to do it. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, you know, that list could go on and on. I have no doubt with your studies in leadership that you could you could give off the cuff, 10 examples of people that had great visions. Well, so when you, when you say leveraging yourself through others, which is the quote I'm using from your book, which I think yeah. is very eloquent, are you talking then about delegation? Yes, I, exactly what I'm talking about. So the, uh, some of the failed leaders that I've known in my past, I say failed because it was obvious to me that they just weren't that successful. I won't mention them by name, um, but there are people who um, have the, um, uh, the, the, what I would call George W. Bush uh, uh, syndrome. They want to be the decidinator. They think that being a great leader is being the person who makes all the decisions. And I would say it's quite to the contrary. The 10 years or so that I was CEO, I honestly believe that I only made, in terms of big decisions, three or four big decisions. And uh, so... In my view, decisions come in three uh, sizes. There's the big, big decisions. And then there's the tiny decisions, the irrelevant tiny decisions like, you know, where are we going to hold a picnic this year? Uh, or, you know, how, what are we going to serve at the banquet or something like that? And then there's all the decisions in between. So my view was the tiny decisions, I don't waste anybody else's time. I just make them. And I don't spend a lot of time doing it. And then the big decisions of which, as I say, in 10 years, there are only about four of them. I want to make those myself, but I also want to caution you. I don't make them in a vacuum. I make them with input from others. And then everything else I push down because it's far better if, the, if, if decisions are pushed down as far as they can go uh, in the organization. Uh, for several different reasons. One is people are more motivated to act on decisions that they've made themselves. Uh, you know, I love, yeah. I, I, um, I don't like anybody else's decisions except my own syndrome, so to speak. And well, nobody wants your change. They want their change. They, exactly. Yeah. Nobody wants to do change that you think should be done. They want change that they think should be done. That's right. That's exactly right. So, the, 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 and um, at some point you're going to get to my, uh, 
four D's and tell me yes. when you want to do it, but it relates directly to this topic. Well, well before you get to that, uh, I just quickly want to share something with you. Uh, when I'm teaching um, leadership and also whenever I would become a new leader of, of an organization, I would get my staff together and I encourage my students to do this. And I would ask them, what do you think delegation means? When I, when I say I'm going to delegate something to you, do you, are you used to hearing that like, hey, take out the trash, I'm delegating that to you, or, you know, sweep the floor, I'm delegating that to you. Like, yeah. it's, it's the shit work that you don't want to do, you're making someone else do it. I said, that's not what a delegate is. A delegate is someone who has all the, the authority of the person at the top and is acting in their place with all of their authority. So when I tell you I'm delegating something to you. If I tell you, take out the trash, I'm delegating that to you. It's because that trash has state secrets in it that need to be shredded. And this is something with all the authority of the person at the top. And when I tell them that, I give them the speech, they think, wow, you know, when I when he tells me to do something, it's very important. And it gives them so much more respect, which is the number one thing people want at work is respect, right? Well, that's exactly More than salary. Right. That's what people want. They want to be respected. Uh, yes. They want to be respected for their ability to make decent decisions. And um, so delegation, and that also relates exactly as you're right, uh, to leveraging yourself through others. So, and it also relates to another um, topic that's important, and that is making sure that you have people on your team who complement you, uh, not complement implement you, which means sucking up to you. Uh, beware of the people that suck up to you, but that complement you in the sense yeah. that uh, they are able to do things that you're not so good at. So because I knew that my strength was big picture, but not so much in uh, execution, I had a second in command who was, uh, who was really, really good at execution. And I would give him all the time authority within parameters. In other words, there were parameters. He couldn't go off and sell the bank on his own without telling me. So there were things that he couldn't do, but they were relatively few. Right, right. You and gave him a, a big a big leash. A big leash, broad parameters. And within those parameters, he was entitled to make any decision he wanted. And even if I was not in favor, you know, I did say to him that, um, I would invite you to uh, get my opinion, if you wish. You don't have to. Um, and if I give it to you, you don't have to follow it. Uh, but I, I, want, I want to repeat something you said. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your story, but you, no, said, you said this second ago, and it was one of my questions. Um, you, you wrote in your book, hire people who compliment you, as in C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, not compliment you, C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T. M-E-N-T. Um, I love that. I love that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that from you because that's great. So in other words, somebody who compliments your skills, not compliments you as saying how great you are. I love that. Well, and I actually, there are a lot of things I borrow, of course, but that's one thing I actually think I came up with on my own. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say that, that um, passive aggressive people are a big danger in, the orga in any organization. And um, I think we don't have to think too far to see situations in which um, a leader has hired people who compliment him, not compliment him. And the, the truth is that 
because organizations historically have tended to be so hierarchical, it's very common for the people that report to you to suck up to you all the time. But generally speaking, you can't trust those people because uh, it's only a matter of time before you find out they actually think you're stupid. They're just sucking up to you because they right. want to get ahead. And, and you, you mentioned a, a Lincoln parable about this too. Can you, can you tell that story very quickly? The, the, the parable that Lincoln told having to do with the subject? Terrible, but I can, I, in general, Lincoln is well known for having chosen a cabinet that consisted not just of people that agreed with him. Exactly. That's what I mean. People who were his, uh, who were known to be his adversaries. And right. his belief was that the only way I'm going to make good decisions. So let's go back to that situation where we're dealing with the three or four big decisions that I made in the course of 10 years. I didn't do that by myself. I pulled together a group that consisted of people that reported to me, as well as maybe a couple of people that didn't report to me, but were relevant stakeholders. And I would describe to them what the situation was and tell them what kind of, what the decision to be made looked like. And I would ask them to debate it with me. And what was so important about that debate was that they had to be honest. They couldn't suck up. They couldn't be passive aggressive. They had to tell me exactly what they thought. And I did my best to withhold my opinion until the end so that my opinion wouldn't discourage them from telling me what they really think. Right. And I also did my best, which is hard because I have one of those faces that um, expresses things easily. Uh, I had to keep a stone face. Because Trying to be a poker faced? A poker face, because otherwise I would, you know, roll my eyes or, or raise my eyebrows in a way that they knew they were going in a direction I didn't like and they would shut up, uh, which is the worst thing in the world because no leader is smart enough to know everything and to make the best decisions without input. So you definitely need smart people that are willing to tell you honestly what they think. So somebody in the chat asked me to repeat something. They, they wanted me to repeat these three things. So management is taking care of things. Supervision is taking care of people, but leadership is about inspiring people to do the things you want done because they want to do it. Exactly. So um, uh, you mentioned the four D's and I know people are probably curious about that. So why don't you go ahead and tell everyone what the four D's are as you list them in the book. Early on, remember I said in the first couple of years I was floundering, floundering's maybe too negative, but I was definitely looking around for the right way. And one of my big questions was how do you make decisions? And what I mean by that is how do you involve others in making decisions with you that are good decisions. And I, I did, as I looked around, I didn't see that many good role models in, from my past. So uh, for example, one of my predecessors in the job basically was um, made all the decisions by himself, uh, but then he put people in a room together and he cajoled them in his direction and sought consensus. And I thought that was totally disingenuous because first of all, you weren't allowed to disagree with him. You were only allowed to agree with him. And um, at the end, he got consensus, but it was a forced consensus. And so to me, that was really underhanded. Uh, that's one way of going about it. Another way of going about it is just to uh, 
make the decisions yourself without consulting anybody as if you were, you know, king or emperor or something like that. And then tell everybody what the decision is and expect they're going to live with it because you're the most important person uh, in your eyes. And another way is to seek real consensus. And I see that in corporations often where a leader will gather a group and say, we're not going to uh, leave the room until we've come to a conclusion that we all agree to. Well, you know, that could take a hundred years. You know, I, I have often said that my wife and I have been together for 40 years and we haven't achieved consensus on anything yet. And we're only two of us. So how are you gonna get eight or 10 people to agree on something. So that's inefficient. You can vote, but um, voting doesn't, um, I'm a, a huge fan of democracy, but as relates to countries, not to, to this question. So I, I was really stymied. And then I came across this guy, Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was the uh, head of Persia 2,500 years ago. And he is known for a very famous phrase, which is diversity in council unity in action. And basically what that means is if Cyrus had a big decision to make, and really this only applies to big decisions in my opinion. If he had a big decision to make, he would pull together the, um, the, the, the group of people that reported to him. And he would say, this is the question. We're going to discuss it. And I want your opinions. So the discussion would last as long as Cyrus wanted it to go. Let's say it would last two hours. And during that two hour period, everybody on his team, I don't know if he used the word team, but um, on his team was required to state their real opinion. And, you know, a good way to get fired would be to not state your real opinion, to just, you know, suck up and nod your head yes. Uh, so you had to participate in the debate and you had to state your real opinion. At the end of the whatever time period, maybe one or two hours, it could have been, I don't know, longer, uh, Cyrus would, would then make the decision. Now, it was his decision to make. He was, after all, the emperor. So he made the decision, but it was really important to him that he have the input of all these people, these stakeholders and uh, experts. And then once the decision was made, then it was time for execution. And that's where everybody has to be on the same page. So... Uh, that would be the uni unity in action. So if we go back to it for a minute, it's diversity in council, unity in action. And the part that many people have trouble with, I think, is that they don't, it's hard for people to understand why it's extremely important that you state your opinion, even if it's different during the first phase, the discussion phase, but then during the third phase, the second is when the decision's made. During the third phase, it's the exact opposite. You're not allowed to keep arguing it. You have to get on board, even if you're not really in your heart on board. It's either get on board or leave uh, because that's the only way you get things done. I've seen so many times in organizations that the, a decision is made, but the people who didn't like it keep sabotaging it. And ultimately, nothing ever really happens in corporations or groups or companies that get bogged down in sabotage, and they ultimately just don't do well. So we decided that I decided um, when I found that 
uh, the story of Cyrus, I decided that is really an interesting approach. And then I started thinking about it. And I started thinking about the biographies that I'd read of great leaders. And it turns out that almost every great leader I'd read about was using something similar to this, you know, asking people's opinions, making the decision, and then executing and demanding that everybody be on board during the execution phase. And I thought this is really good. So, you know, to, to help people remember things, you got to brand them a little bit. So we started calling it the three D's, discuss, decide, and deliver. And uh, then with somebody added a fourth D later on, because uh, if, if people started saying, well, that all works pretty well, but maybe sometime six or eight months or a year after we've started executing, we ought to stop for a minute and debrief and figure out whether or not it was really such a good decision after all. So we added debrief to it, but that's what that is. And in my opinion, that is the closest thing to a uh, formula for good decision-making as I have ever found. So it's, de- so when you're making a big decision, number one is debate. Number two is decide. Number three is deliver. And number four is debrief. So, <laughs> so once you've made the decision, you're delivering it, everybody's on board with it. And then the debrief is kind of the results of the decision where you're Right. Checking to see a year later, you say to yourself, okay, today we're going to discuss that decision we made a year ago and decide, was it a good decision? How has it gone? Now, Ken, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's nothing there. There's nothing wrong. And this happens a lot where we work with boards and boards, you know, are it's it's like herding cats. You've got 12 eight type personalities in a room and everyone's right. Yeah. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with asking questions that are leading. In other words, asking questions in a way to get the answers that you want to get everybody on board. Sometimes to get to make your ideas into everyone's ideas, um, you know, and if they shoot down your idea, that's great. If their debate happens, they shoot down your idea and then you find out, hey, my idea is not so good after all. That's great. But there's nothing wrong with saying, um, you know, if you know, if you're leading a regiment of soldiers and you came from the south where the Taliban is and you know that the mountains are in winter to the east and there's more Taliban to the west, the only way to go is north. There's nothing wrong with saying, so, you know, I, these are the situation. What do you guys think? Where should we go? Knowing you have to go north and letting it be their idea to go north, right? Because then yeah. everyone's invested in the decision. So sometimes I feel like it's not so much about debate for the, uh, debate because you, you don't know what the right answer is. Sometimes the debate is necessary to get everyone to think it's their idea to do it. Well, that's exactly right. And that's, I would call that a kind of a subcategory of debate. Um, it's a special form because it's not um, the regular debate. But um, if you already know the answer, and you're 99% certain you know the answer, rather than saying, let's debate this, it's much better to say, the question is, where are we going to go? And I'm virtually certain we should be going in this direction. We'll take 20 minutes. And any of you that thinks I'm wrong, please present your argument. Please tell me why I'm wrong. And after, and I need to know your honest opinion. And after, you know, 20, 30 minutes, I'm going to decide. So this is your one chance. Tell me why I'm wrong. Because you, it's always conceivable you're wrong. 
And I think that is a little bit, unless I'm wrong, that's what you're driving at there. You don't want to waste a lot of time debating something that you already know the answer to because people, they'll feel used. They'll think you're being phony. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We will return next week for the third and final installment of our series on leadership with Ken Wilcox, author of Leading Through Culture. Ken Wilcox's book, Leading Through Culture, How Real Leaders Create Cultures That Motivate People to Achieve Great Things, is available at Amazon. Thank you to the Gene Eschy Center for Nonprofit Research, California State University Fullerton, and the College of Business and Economics for supporting our podcast. Our supporters include the Orange County Community Foundation, Southern California Gas Company, and you, our listeners. Thanks for the music provided to us by the California-based Brazilian Coro Ensemble, Grupo Falso Baiano. Have a great week, free from BS. Thank you.